Okay. Um, so I want to pray, and then I want to address something that kind of came up in our conversations as we're kind of experiencing this all together, right? Um, some conversations came up that I thought were very, very helpful, um, and I want to talk about it a little bit. It's, it's okay to talk about how to talk about the Three Angels messages and not just talk about the Three Angels messages. So if we take time for that, I'm totally fine. I have extra time. I can do that presentation on how the war in heaven started and the issues for that. I can do that anytime. I was just going to fill empty space, but this is actually very relevant, so we'll, we'll do it. So let's pray. God, thank you again for loving us, for providing for us. The Three Angels messages are so practical and I, I can't even imagine how much more you want to show us because I, I, I believe we're just scratching the surface. But bless us now as we continue to study. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't want to lose sight of this issue of selfishness and unselfishness, but a conversation was started that was so fruitful, I just want to continue it a few more moments. So I'm fully, through the conversation we had here, like if I don't think that what God is asking of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is to only give six literal verses to the world. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud... I don't think that God is expecting us to only verbatim share what is found in Revelation 14, 6 through 12. Clearly, He wants that information shared, but it's going to require digging to even apply those things. And we as a movement have already done some of that digging, Right? Uh, you don't always hear it, but there are people who've been making the point for a while that it's a direct quote from the Sabbath commandment when it says, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and springs of water. Okay, so when, when language is used in Revelation that's used other places, those other places and the stories surrounding them help you apply and interpret the book of Revelation. I was just talking about this with Bogdan. Whenever it talks about Jezebel in the book of Revelation, you need to go study the story of Jezebel and see how that fits into the narrative of that aspect of church history, right? Or wherever it's found. And so it's an interpretive tool that's important because John is writing the book of Revelation in Roman prison, right? Like he's on a Roman prison camp. They tried to kill the guy. He wouldn't die. So they put him off into exile, but he's in Roman incarceration. So he's not going to write this scandalous letter talking about all the abuses of Rome that currently are and will be, though he understood that it would be Rome that would do this. And I think Paul did too in 2 Thessalonians 2. But they were smart. They were wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So they would use language that people would need to dig to understand and apply right? Because this is being circulated throughout a Roman kingdom. They're trying to continue the gospel work. They didn't avoid truth, but they were smart in how they shared it and preserved it. Does that make sense? Okay. And so I believe that God gives the three angels messages with the expectation that we're going to dig and think for ourselves. So when Bogdan, you're asking like, hey, you know, like, where has this been? Is this new or something? You know, like, I think part of it is that that quote from Prescott, I'll read that again, because I think it's super, super helpful. Um, that the danger that we can face. One of the dangers has been that we were so sure that we had the truth that we did not want any more. If anyone came with any more truth, we were afraid that he was departing from the faith. That's from W.W. W. Prescott in 1919. I don't know what the book was. I'll, I'll ask my friend Sean. But I think that that's, that's something for us to kind of work through, that it wasn't like Jones and Wagner were preaching a different Adventist message they were bringing even more meat and beauty to the Adventist message that God was, was developing, right? We hadn't even been around for 50 years when they were preaching. So there's a process that God is doing. The more we grow, the more that current events happen, the more study we have, of course you're going to keep growing, 
right? Some of my mentors have gotten a hard time from some people like, you know, you used to say this, but now you say that. And they're like, yeah, I kept reading. Like, can I have some room for that? Now, what conclusions those people come to and how it works? It's, that's not even the point. What I'm saying is that we, we should give ourselves room to keep reading and keep growing. So my understanding of the three angels' messages was largely math-based when I came into the movement. Yeah, 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 Mark of the Beast, Sabbath, if people even see that, the investigative judgment, Pope's bad, I got it, right? Three angels' messages, yeah, 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 yeah. But like, where's Jesus in all this? That was kind of my struggle, you know? And the more that I was, you know, being convicted of certain things that God wanted me to share when I would travel and preach and go to different places, and I saw how much it resonated with people, the more I started to look at the three angels' messages and kind of sort through, I realized like, no, that fits there. When Ella White says that the everlasting gospel is the same gospel that was preached in the Garden of Eden and has been preached throughout salvation history, well, that's a suffering Messiah, which means that something about the everlasting gospel should contain a suffering Messiah. And you could preach the Gethsemane through the cross there if you wanted to, but that's also the faith of Jesus. So I do the everlasting gospel of the sufferings of Christ uh, in the ways that you and I suffer, and then in the faith of Jesus, then we go into Gethsemane through the cross. You can do both, right? Because Jesus is welcome at all stages of the three angels' messages. And I think the greatest example of the faith of Jesus is found at the cross anyway. So it's, it's going to take some digging. So I'm not an expert. I'm, I'm largely uneducated. But the things that I'm studying or learning or seeing, I'm just seeing how those fit into the issues. And we talked about this during the break as well, that we, I think we've largely been focusing on the fruit of the three angels' messages, right? Whether you keep in the right day or not, whether you go to church on Sabbath or the call to worship on Sabbath or that we live in the midst of the investigative judgment. But we haven't really addressed as much. I'm sure there's people who are doing it. I'm not like some crazy guy with a bunch of light that no one knows about. I'm sure other people are doing this. They may not have public platforms or something, but I'm sure there's people who are doing this and maybe there's some that do have platforms and are doing it. Uh, I know some certainly are, are dancing all around this. Um, Ty Gibson's one of them as far as pulling out some of these root issues of selfishness and so forth. Fred Bischoff was talking about this years ago. Uh, he passed away, but, um, and my friend Jared Thurman and Rico and Fred went on 3ABN and went through this whole issue of selfishness years ago. That seed was in my mind. And as I started looking at the issues of Babylon, I realized this is the issue because I saw the language that the Antichrist power is using that's used about the Antichrist power or what it says is the same type of language that's used by Lucifer when it talks about how he does life selfishly. And we'll make those connections when we come back to the presentation we left to talk about it. Um, so you'll, you'll hear things over time. No, no, that fits there. And add it, right? It's okay if you hear something from somebody else. Take what you learned, do something with it, and build on it. That's, that's how truth comes about. You know, you, so to isolate yourself from other resources is helpful in the sense of wrestling to some degree, but you'll lose a blessing if you don't consult them, right? So when I would write sermons, I would do whatever I could, and then I would consult other resources and finish the sermon. I wouldn't avoid them entirely. So it's a good experience to go through to not just eat somebody else's food that they ate. That's true, but you also want to benefit from the fact that God gave these people light to bless you in your search, and your messages will be even better through the insights he's given to others. You're cross-pollinating, right? Bees do that. It leads to a beautiful crop. So it's the same type of idea. Um, so anyway, just some stuff to kind of ponder and think about as, you're, as we're talking about how to talk about the three angels' messages. The messages should empower people to succeed in responding to the messages, and it makes sense, really, because this is a policy that God has. We talked about this yesterday, that all of God's, pro all of the laws and promises that God has made, 
in the, in the, in the command of God is the power to walk in the command, Ellen White says. And in the promises of God is the power to receive the promises. So if that principle is true, and Jones is going is to hammer that home, Jones and Wagner both, as you're reading Lessons on Faith, as they're hammering that process, why shouldn't we apply that same principle to the three angels' messages? That the way in which we preach the three angels' messages would empower people to succeed in responding to the three angels' messages. Does that make sense? I think we're actually doing a disservice if we don't. Not intentionally, I just think that as, as we survey and inventory where we are and what has happened, we need to recognize that there's still some work we need to do to take what we love and cherish and to be able to communicate it in a way that shows Jesus. That's a, that's a bare minimum, have-to-do, non-negotiable requirement. But we also need to ensure that we're setting people up to succeed in the very thing that we're showing them is important because that's what God does, right? So God reveals who He is then he tells us what he expects, but when he tells us what he expects, he enables us to succeed in what he expects. Those are kind of the, the, the primary ways that God deals with heavy stuff. Here's who I am, and because of who I am, I'm asking you to do this, but I'll even give you the power to do that. And I think if we took that up, you see that in the Ten Commandments, right? The New Covenant, God is the one writing the law in your heart and in your mind. He expects it, but when he gives the Ten Commandments, how does he start? I am your Redeemer. I'm the one who delivered you. These are things I'm asking of you, but I'm not asking without helping. I'll send the Holy Spirit to provide for you, right? Like what you said during break, Adriana, that feels like someone just told me I had to be on a thousand-mile journey, and I've been on this, like, how do I get to the end of this road? And then someone just gave me a car full of gas. Like, now I know how to get where God's expecting me to be. And that takes a lot of the hopelessness away from the experience, doesn't it? Because you realize, okay, yeah, God asks some big things, but God's not unreasonable. God's willing to set me up to succeed in those big things. Well, the world will respond to that. If all we're doing is like the Pharisees and saying, God expects all this stuff and get with the program, but we don't communicate how God has promised to enable us to succeed in what He's asking, then it could be problematic, right? Then we could get ourselves in a lot of trouble. So I think this is an important principle for us to apply. So that's kind of our parenthetical statement of talking about, talking about the three angels' messages, not just what they are, Yeah. Great discussion. Thank you for this. This has been a blessing, um, hopefully for you, but also just for us to kind of think through, because it's so easy, right? When I first heard the Adventist message, I'm telling everybody about the Pope, right? Can you believe no one told us about the Sabbath or the Pope or these things? And you'll you'll never believe it. People thought I was crazy. (laughs) And um, we don't want to have that type of a reaction, though it's kind of like unsettling and kind of infuriating and and exciting all at once, you know, this, this process of hearing new things we haven't heard before and we feel like we probably should have. But instead of focusing on why it hasn't happened, just ensure that no one else has to wait. Does that make sense? Instead of spending a bunch of emotional energy being upset about what so-and-so didn't do, the chances are no one told them, right? We're inheriting what people tell us. So this is part of what God intends for the Advent movement for us to keep growing and keep reading and keep digging. So what you're receiving is fruit from that work. So celebrate that and make sure that no one else has to wait. And that's a better way to use your energy than just being upset about what didn't happen. And that's not a, that's not a critical statement towards anyone with those thoughts, because many of us have those thoughts. I certainly did too. I'm just realizing I think this is the healthiest way to deal with those thoughts, is to make sure I know what I just heard so that I can ensure that no one else has to not know it anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah, Sasha. Yeah, it's a great controversy. 
And she says, it is Satan's constant effort to misrepresent the character of God, the nature of sin, the real issues at stake in the controversy, his sophistry lessens the obligation of the divine law, and gives men license to sin. At the same time, he causes them to cherish false conceptions of God so that they regard him with fear and hate rather than love, and so on and so forth. It's like, it sounds similar to things that you're saying. Yeah. Um, I understand like, the real issues at stake in the great controversy as it pertains to the angels message in the end of time. It's a long quote that goes into the papacy and all that, but yeah. And we're actually going to close with a quote from the papacy and how she says that their message is actually perfectly suited for where the world is right now, which is very interesting. The three angels' messages is very relevant for this time, but the message they're preaching also has a form of relevance. It doesn't have a solution, but it's interesting. We'll, we'll close with that with this presentation. Now, I thank you for sharing that. Yes? Uh, yeah, anytime God has a message, uh, Satan has a character. He does. Something that will appeal to people. It doesn't mean that it's good for them, but it will appeal to them, and that's the difference, right? Okay, we've got to get back on the train. We, we, we left our trail. All right, so 2 Thessalonians 2. Now look at the language that's used about the Antichrist power, and we're going to see how similar that language is to the language that was used about Lucifer in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 and other places. Okay, listen to this. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you, this is 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, now to verse 2, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So somebody wrote a letter to the church at Thessalonica and said, hey, by the way, Jesus came already, y'all missed it. Love, Paul. And they're like, ah, wait, what? What happened? And Paul's like, no, 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 Jesus hasn't come yet. Okay, let no one deceive you, verse 3, by any means, for that day will not come unless what happens? The falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. That's important language there. We may, we're going to deal with this in the Antichrist class, so I probably won't park and bark on this too much. So, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Was that language used in Ezekiel 28? Especially verses 1 through 11, right? before we get to the part we usually read. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You say you are a God, but you are not a God, you are a man. Or you say you are a God and not a man. Right? He said that in Ezekiel 28 in the first verses of that chapter. So it's the same language, which I think is really important because the support system for the papacy, like the papacy isn't really the issue. And that's what I'm trying to make clear. It's an issue. They are the storefront that Satan is using to deceive the world. That's totally true. But those are not their original ideas or philosophies. These come directly from the throne of Satan. Are you understanding? And just being a member of that movement or adhering to the teachings of that movement does not spare you from also being in danger to these sophistries of Satan. This is why this root of the three angels' messages matters, especially the second and third angel, because we're kind of covering both of them, really, in this presentation. So there's only one place in Scripture where the phrase son of perdition is used apart from this one, and Paul was smart in this, because remember, Paul is in Rome, in Roman-occupied territory, and he recognizes me stating because he understands Daniel 2, he understands the principles of what kingdoms have ruled. He knows there's going to be a Roman power that's going to be a church-state entity that's going to fall and rise, right? It's going to fall. There's going to be a falling away that happens in the church that will lead to this type of situation. 
So he uses the phrase son of perdition with the intention that we're going to do some research and find where it is. Anyone know where it's at? Speaking of Judas, that's right. So it's in John 17 and verse 12. Jesus is praying to the Father and says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Judas was cherishing a spirit. That was John 17, 12, if you need that for your notes. Okay, John 17, 12. We just use our little decoder rings, right? We see a phrase, we find that phrase again because it's important. Why does he use a title like that? Is that anywhere in the Bible? You bet it is. So Judas was cherishing a spirit that was not in harmony with God's kingdom principle. And what's God's kingdom principle again? Unselfishness. The apostate papal system is built upon the same foundation. It started with God and deviated from that course through selfishness and covetousness. So this system, like Judas, has betrayed Christ. So what happens to the early church at an institutional level parallels the story of Judas. It was with God, and it departed from the things of God because of covetousness and selfishness. Okay? And while thinking they're doing God a favor, Judas thought he was doing Jesus a favor. This is going to force Jesus' hand. He's finally going to flex and then I'll come back, and it's going to be okay, and it didn't work that way, okay? So when we cherish a spirit of independent stubbornness and selfishness, it's the spirit of the Antichrist, because the word anti means in the place of, not against, and so we place our own wisdom, our own preferences, our own desires in place of Christ in our hearts. This is the danger, and is that something that's only limited to the papacy? Could that happen with you and I, right? So just focusing on all the bad things they do will not set you up to succeed in three angels' messages. So we see similar language regarding the spirit of selfishness in all the prophetic passages that we use for the Antichrist. So we're just going to look through those so you can kind of recognize them um, because we read those texts just trying to prove that the Pope is the Antichrist or the papacy is the Antichrist, but we don't realize what the spirit is that actuates him and what the real danger is. Does that make sense? So Daniel 8, 11 and 12, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. Didn't Lucifer say, I will be like the most high, right? And, be, and I'm just, I'm just going to do the underlying statements because I need to, to make up for time here. Then we get to Daniel 8, 25, where it says, he shall exalt himself in his heart and he shall even rise against the prince of princes. That's Daniel 8, 25. Revelation 13, 11, then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Now, this is the second beast power in Revelation, but it's in coercion and cohorts with the first beast power. Okay, he speaks the dragon's language, which is self-focused and leads to self-exaltation and self-worship, which is basically essentially worshiping the dragon himself, right? And we've had some language like that about making things great. Anyway... Revelation 13, 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So that selfish spirit will lead people to worship the first beast who is selfish. They're all in co, you know, uh, collusion together. So he leads others to engage in this type of thinking and they too will worship the beast and in turn the dragon, right? The chief selfish propagator, Okay. So, this is going to hurt a little bit, 
Selfishness is itself an act of worship, self-worship and false worship. And this is why we have to show that this is part of the Laodicean message, us being challenged head on. The Laodicean message is not for coffee-drinking, movie-watching, loosey-goosey Adventists who don't toe the line on policy. The Laodicean message is for every single Seventh-day Adventist, including those in leadership, including people like me that work for the church, including pastors and teachers and elders and any of us, all of us have to respond to and fall on the rock of the Laodicean message, that you are not who you think you are at every aspect of your being, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, and otherwise. And until each of us come face to face with our nothingness, we are not prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Doesn't matter how many souls your hand has baptized, doesn't matter how many Bible studies you've given, I don't care if your great-great-great-great-grandfather mowed Ellen White's lawn. At the end of the day, if you do not see your nothingness, you cannot be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. She's so clear on that. Faith I live by 111. I'll read it for the thousandth time. What is justification by faith? It's the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And when men see their nothingness, they're prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's just, that's just where we are, okay? When we see it, then we can be clothed. Until then, we're naked. And that's what he says. You don't see that you're naked, okay? Because you don't see your nothingness. All right, Revelation 13. Verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. This is a false revival. Uh, it's one interpretation of this. Uh, that the United States is going to bring about. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs. Um, so he's using this spiritual power, these revivals, these signs to kind of court people, right? Working miracles gets people to overlook the deceitful root structures that uplift the dragon system of worship. Bypasses the whole logic brain, right? If we were, and I think this is one of the reasons why Ellen White actually makes the statement. I don't know if it was Rico or if it was Lance that talked about this that God is not going to work miracles in the same way that He did in the church in Pentecost. It's going to be through medical missionary work. And I think it's because it's going to lead to a humble form of service that leads to genuine conversion, not just people responding emotionally in the moment, right? Because this is like the closing crisis. It's not growing an early church and getting people into the movement, right? And it certainly worked then, but this is different than that. This is like people making legitimate quality decisions for the rest of their eternal lives. And so I think this is one of the reasons behind this. And so the signs and wonders aren't actually being worked near as much by the believers as they are by, by Lucifer. It doesn't mean all miracles are going to be bad. You need to kind of weigh them, obviously, and what the people tell you. The Bible says that. They say a prophecy, and it comes to pass, but then they say, don't follow God. God has not sent them, even if they work a miracle or the prophet's right, right? So you got you to sift through that. But um, and I'm still wrapping my mind around some of these principles and some of these themes. I'm just, just wondering about this. But in contrast, in Revelation 14, God's special people have His Father's name written in their foreheads. So this is not talking about the seal of God fully, right? Part of what's being said here is that His name is written in their foreheads. The very character of God and an understanding of who He is is fully understood by the 144,000. Now, don't ask me questions about the 144,000. There's multiple views. Is it literal? Is it not? I think the answer is no, it's not literal. Uh, but then the question is, is it just talking about the redeemed or is it talking about the last generation? 
I have on the mind that it's the redeemed at large, um, but people can disagree with that. Who cares? All right. You can ask Jesus during the millennium. But the point is that those people, whoever they are, right, they certainly are the redeemed in one form or fashion, they have so understood his character of other-centered love that it's defining the very ways that they do life. This is why they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Right? The fact that it's in their forehead means that they truly believe this and it drives their decision-making, which is why it's so important for us to make the character of God known to people. And it needs to be at the heart of everything that we teach. And they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. But the beast power in Revelation 13 is discussed as forcing people to receive the mark on their forehead or in their hand. And does this happen, by the way, when you're in oppressive environments? Is it really easy for you to become a violator and an oppressor just to survive? Yes. Right? That way of thinking continues, right? And so, in fact, that totally happened in the Dark Ages. People got so fed up with the bad religion of the papacy that France had a revolt. They said, if this is what God is like, there is no God. Right? And they took the Pope off the throne by violence. Right? There was a militant opposition to religion because of bad religion using violence. Right? He who fights by the sword shall die by the sword. Right? So God's people only receive the mark in their forehead because He knows that beliefs drive actions in His kingdom. And only unselfish love can drive true obedience and service that will be viewed as acceptable to God. Right? I know this is kind of some heavy stuff, but like this is, it's, it's beliefs that drive actions. God knows that. And if we have unhealthy beliefs, it will lead to unhealthy actions. So God is addressed. So again, mental health is present truth, guys. Many of our people are believing lies about God and about themselves. That's part of the purpose of the Laodicean message and the Three Angels messages, is to speak into that space. Part of the work that God is doing in the investigative judgment is not just cleansing the sanctuary above of any record of sin and not just cleansing you know, the, the earthly sanctuary and so forth. He's also trying to cleanse any record of sin that you've committed or has been committed against you in your own heart and mind. Because the violations that we have committed and have been committed against us lead us to take unhealthy actions against us and against others. And even to view God as being distant or doesn't care. So God is also trying to cleanse our hearts and our minds of these records of sins that are holding us back. Do you understand that? The abuses, the violations, the neglect, the abandonment, all of that. He wants to cleanse the temple of that sin as well. And and we're the ones that won't let it go. We're telling him that belongs here. You can't touch that. So God's trying to cleanse the sanctuary and we're fighting him in that. It's much more than we think. So the warning of the third angel is to show that selfishness leads to destruction. And out of his love for those who are in danger of being led astray, he gives a clarion call to true worship that's fueled by love, a faith that works by love, Galatians 5, 6. By the way, I don't know if I'll have time to do a worship on this with you guys, but there's something in Audioverse right now called the cleansing of the sanctuary that I did at Avent Hope where I talked about what I just mentioned as far as this idea of the cleansing of the sanctuary and the record of the sins that we've committed against ourselves and that and against others and that have been committed against us. Um, if you want to hear more of that later, because I don't have time to really go into that, though I'm tempted. Revelation 17, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So part of the wine of her teachings is selfishness and greed for gain. She taught the kings of the earth how to do trade in life. Okay? In Revelation 17, says that the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Again, opulence. 
You know, you ever gone to Europe and seen some of the temples or the, you know, the, uh, not synagogues or temples, what do they call those? Cathedrals, right? Uh, they're very opulent, very expensive, right? They've poured a lot of money into this. Yes. They're pretty to look at, but. Because on Instagram, like, he, he went on this super huge trip, and, like, he was up in Israel at, like, all these supposed sites of, like, Christ's, um, like, miracles, his tomb, and on and on and on. And everything is, like, decked out with, like, it looks like they crammed, like, a Catholic church into the tomb. <laughs> like, pearls and gold and, like, silks and everything. Yeah. You know, John, John Muir has this statement. It doesn't fully apply here, but it just reminds me of it, that John, John Muir, he's a naturalist. Some people believe he was a devout Christian. Others believe he was kind of like, a, kind of like John Harvey Kellogg, pantheist slash Christian. Uh, he had some brilliant things to say. He had very scriptural language that he used because he grew up in a culture where the Bible was so important to everybody. But anyway, he says that nothing dollarable is safe um, because people were just like, you know, totally whoring out Yosemite and things before it had been touched by man. They were just ruining it. And it's unfortunate that, you know, nothing sacred is safe either, right? They, oh, we can make a buck on this. Let's, uh, you know, it's, it's sad. We see in Revelation 18 that in response to all this craziness, after all these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. This is the fourth angel. Ellen White makes the statement that this angel is basically a repetition of the third angel's message with a loud voice. It's the loud cry message, which is what Jones and Wagner were preaching. And Ellen White said very clearly, the loud cry is happening as we speak. So that's the stuff that we've been talking about, this message of justification by faith that needs to go before the world. Um, so that process was happening legitimately in the 1800s as God was setting up his people to succeed. And um, we're going to have to acknowledge that as a people at some point in time, that that totally was happening and it had to stop. So, um, so that's the call of the, third angel, or the fourth angel. But then it says, He cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. It's very interesting to me that what leads to the fall of Babylon is not a 37-message expose about the papacy and secret societies. It's the preaching of the gospel. What makes Babylon's message absolutely worthless is when the gospel exposes the futility of creature merit. So it's the preaching of the gospel that leads to the fall of Babylon. It doesn't mean we don't identify who the beast is and the dangers. Of course we can. And I'm going to show you why at the end of this presentation, because we can show how Babylon is at war with the gospel. This isn't about Babylon. The three angels' messages are not about Babylon. It's about the gospel. And the reason why you had to talk about Babylon is because it's at war with the gospel. Does that make sense? Right? This is why those bookends matter. If the beginning is the gospel and the end is the gospel, then everything in the middle has to be an issue regarding the gospel because God wants man to be saved, right? So she became rich through the abundance of her luxury. Uh, the, the merchants became rich because of her and all that. Verse 4, But God says, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues, because her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. And the cup which she mixed, mixed double for her. So here's the point. God is not just calling people out of Babylon. He's calling Babylon out of His people not an original statement. I'm sure you've heard a lot of people say that, but have people talked to you about what Babylon really is and what the issues really are? 
Okay, it's this quest of selfishness. Forsake kingdom, Satan's kingdom principle and embrace mine. That's what God is saying in the three angels' messages. Forsake this principle of selfishness and receive the principle of other-centered love because that's your safety, okay? So she glorified herself, Revelation 18 and verse 7, and lived luxuriously. Um, I'm going to skip some of Revelation 18. It just talks about, she had tremendous influence, by the way. If you read just the rest of Revelation 18, merchants, tradesmen, politicians, kings, all the riches that she had, and that everyone is weeping over her death because of the influence that she had, right? So she's deeply entrenched and involved in all of world commerce and how the world does commerce. That's totally involved as well. Um, So the kings of the earth have attributed their wealth and success to her. She's been serving as a storefront for the dragon in his way of doing life. Do you get yours? Right? That's, That's what they do. But in Revelation chapter 19, it says that God's bride has made herself ready. She's successfully refused Satan's efforts to live for self and has chosen to consecrate herself fully to Christ. And in verses 7 to 8, she can be arrayed in fine linen, which is the righteous acts of the saints. Right? And they don't claim it for themselves. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is. As far as, you know, that we've... Well, that she, like, thought that her lovers were giving her everything and all of that, and, like, they're totally wrong. They're right. At the end of the day, what's it worth, right? So she pursued her lovers, one of these goods, and so forth, and what he had to show for it at the end of the day, regret, weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know? And so God's message of mercy is to show them the futility of these types of pursuits, because the thing is, what we're really wanting when we pursue those things anyway is love and acceptance. If I've got enough money and enough success, someone will give me what I want. You can have that without the money. In fact, you already have it whether you choose to appreciate it or not. God already loves you. God already accepts you. It's an issue of what we do with that information, right? So, now I'll drop kick the Pope for a few minutes because you just got to, you know. I'm just kidding. Well, kind of, but not really. So, Let's take a look at a few of the dangerous teachings of the papacy that are at war with the gospel, because this, you have to show this, I think, to be able to make a clear case, because we are not avoiding our view of the role the papacy plays, but we also need to make sure that it's clear that the papacy is not really the creator of these ideas. It's the last stop on the train, and the very virus that's in them can be in people who are claiming to believe present truth. Selfishness. That's our danger, okay? And there are teachings in Babylon that are directly at war with the gospel, which is our main concern, okay? The teaching of eternal torment and purgatory. So this idea that people burn forever, that God burns people forever, He keeps them alive in a conscious state, right? Because people would die from being overwhelmed by what they're going through, or they would pass out. God keeps them conscious throughout this entire experience. It would take a miracle to keep them alive, to keep torturing them. And this idea of purgatory, which is, which is a horrible view for obvious reasons. And Ellen White is super clear on this, that there are many infidels in the world today, largely because of that teaching of eternal torment. Okay? And then there's purgatory, because one of the other teachings is that, and we'll get to this in a moment, that the church controls your destiny. I didn't know this for the longest time. Uh, my cousin was Catholic and then left and became a Baptist. And you know, big deal, you change churches. Well, it's a really big deal if you're a Catholic, because the teaching of the Catholic Church is, if you're a Catholic, you're saved. If you're a member of the church, you're saved. If you're not, you're lost. That's, that's literally their teaching, which is why they tell you to sprinkle your baby and do the other stuff. There's other things behind that too, but 
if you're a member of the church, you're saved. If you're not, you're lost. But what do you do with backslidden, tepid people who are on the books? Oh, that's a good point. Uh, Purgatory. Yeah, purgatory. So if they lived a tepid, worldly life, but they're entitled to heaven just because they were members of a church, the only way we can deal with that is we've got to make them pay for it, right? And so they're going to burn it off in this halfway house until they're good enough, then they can go into heaven. It's a horrible teaching. It's, it's, it's inconsistent, first of all. It's gross, right? Denying the right and example of leadership in marriage, right? The priest cannot marry. Nuns cannot marry. They're, they're given a vow of celibacy, which... Um, unfortunately, is not working very well based upon all the instances of abuse that happen in the world. PA had a big one. In fact, the church right over here had some of those instances. Um, baptism by sprinkling. In fact, that's why your background checks are so complicated is because Pennsylvania has stricter laws because of what happened with the things that came out through the Catholic Church. Baptism by sprinkling instead of immersion, completely ruining the teaching tool and lesson of having to die, Right? One of the teachings of baptism is you dying to self, being put in the tomb and being raised in newness of life. Now you get to keep, you know, your old life. You just sprinkle some holiness on it and you can keep going, right? It actually flies in the face of this teaching of baptism. Infant baptism and consequences, if not, if you do not sprinkle your baby and your baby dies, it will be lost forever, which is a horrible, horrible teaching, right? We don't believe that. There has not been an age of accountability, the ability to reason and understand we do not stand for that. We don't believe that either. Yes? Well, they also teach that the baby inherits the guilt. Right. You don't inherit the guilt. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'd I, I put original sin and that stuff in here. But yeah, it's, it's, it's gnarly. Um, it's, it, the more you learn, the more you get kind of like stomach aches and stuff. You know, it's pretty bad. Um, the veneration of saints and the idolizing of people, right? So someone they feel is worthy, they, they venerate them, and now you can pray to the saints, Right? Um, and, and you kind of have to pray to the saints and Mother Mary and so forth instead of actually going directly to Jesus, which we fully believe you can go directly to Jesus. Uh, the priest having the ability to forgive sins. That's a direct biblical quote for blasphemy, right? They tried to stone Jesus for doing that. So uh, you have to go to a priest for your sins to be forgiven. Discouraging personal study of the Word of God for the members. You can't understand it. Only priests can understand it. They don't believe in the priesthood of all believers. And so you need to come to me to know what to believe. Well, that's convenient when you're running a system of abuse, right? Whenever you've got narcissism and gaslighting and other things going on, it's institutionalizing in this way. You set people up to basically only come to you for their solutions, which is ripe ground for abuse and long-term abuse and uh, imprisonment, largely mentally. The church controls your destiny. We dealt with that. Focus on a man as the head of the church and denying the priesthood of all believers. Uh, we fully believe in the priesthood of all believers, that God can work and speak to any and all. It, they deny liberty of conscience, right? This fundamental right as an American, and we believe as Christians, that everybody should have the right to make decisions for themselves. By the way, in 1888, when the general conference session happened in October, I believe, Two months later, in December, A.T. Jones was debating Senator Blair on the floor of the House of Congress, fighting a Sunday law that was seeking to be passed in the United States of America. This is a big deal, guys. Like, literally, remember all the stuff that we read last weekend, um, Saturday night, about Ellen White saying that we're on the cusp of eternity and that Jesus could have come by now. Literally, that crisis that we know is coming was coming. And Jones didn't just sit back and let it happen. 
well, Sunday law is just going to happen. Might as well just, nothing you can do about it. Dude got up and preached his guts out to these individuals to show them you can't do this. And he would have said the same thing if they were mandating Sabbath worship because you're denying people liberty of conscience. And so there were two things that God was doing to prepare people to stand in the day of God. The message of Christ, our righteousness, and liberty of conscience. Both of these were essential elements. And Jones in 1893 in his General Conference sermons was preaching on those two topics. First, liberty of conscience, then he preached on the gospel in the Three Angels' Messages. So we as an Advent movement are going to need to embrace both of those again for the closing of the work. And as you are recognizing, there are some scary things happening right now with some of this liberty of conscience. We should be champions for this, making the best decisions we can in the interest of the people around us, but also maintaining the rights of people to have liberty of conscience. Okay? You don't have to choose one or the other. You can strive for both. Okay? I'm not talking about vaccines, so if your question's at, I'm, I'm going to ignore it. Okay. Um, so, like, what, what you're talking about, like, about, like, Sunday laws and stuff, like, mm-hmm. liberty of conscience, do you think that, like, we should be, like, actively, like, I don't know, like, fighting, but, like, like protesting that against, like, like the, the, the government when they try to put in the Sunday laws, or do you, so, so we're not just supposed to let it be, because, like, that's what I've, not always, but I was like, well, you know, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, you know? Most people assume that's a good question. If you read the book, Last Day Events, it's a compilation, but there's a statement in there that Ellen White makes that she basically implies to not just sit back and let it happen, um, but to do it in, she says, but with our pen and with our voice, basically advocate for the truth of, of, of liberty of conscience. Because the thing is, we're wanting people to be saved. So part of our response, and I don't mean this to project to you, but part of our response is, let's just wrap this thing up. I want to get out of here. God's thinking, I'm not willing that any should perish. God's not slack concerning His promise, 2 Peter 3, 9. As some count slackness, meaning the second coming, but He's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish. So she says, if we are praying that God, and so she even says that we can pray for God to give us more time. But she says our, our actions should be in harmony with our prayers. Yeah, that our actions should be in harmony with our prayers. And we shouldn't be like, you know, strutting our stuff in the front yard in short shorts, mowing the yard, putting a thumb in the eye of the government on Sunday, like to not make a big spectacle. She said to do ministry work and so forth on Sundays, not make a big deal out of it. Um, Because some people think like, I'll show you, you know, and that's not really the way that we should approach it either. The last day events has some really good kind of uh, quotes that give some information for that. They use fear to lead people to serve God, which certainly God does not endorse. Indulgences, you can pay for your sins Put some money in the box and you'll go free, right? You got some relatives that died and they lived a bad life. If you give us enough money, we can get them out of jail. Communion and transubstantiation, that Jesus literally has to be crucified every time the wafer and the, the wine, literal wine they use, uh, is given, right? So they, they teach that Jesus literally dies multiple times uh, because of this teaching, which is not true. This is, my, this is one of the most offensive beliefs I think that can exist. They actually endorse theistic evolution. The Catholic Church does. To claim to be a Christian and to believe the Bible, and then in the same breath to say that God created through the means of death, destruction, and disease is offensive to God. Period. Let alone the fact that that denies the intrinsic moral value of a human being. Because we did not come from mistakes and ooze and monkeys. You were handcrafted by a God of love for a specific purpose. And so that's a super offensive teaching that the Catholic Church believes. Do you have a question, Julia? 
or were you just kind of like, yeah? Kind of. Okay. Well, they, yeah, yeah, no, and, but the thing is, like, they're teaching theistic evolution. That's far more offensive to me than evolution, because you're claiming God literally created through the means of evolution. Yeah, it's worse, actually. Yeah, no, that, yeah, I, I didn't explain it, sorry. So, you know, like, we had an Adventist institution, I'm not going to go into that, but we had an Adventist institution, one of our colleges, that was teaching evolution. And there was a big uproar over this. David Ashrick blew a gasket, wrote a letter to the general conference president, and other people got involved. And, um, and there are still some of our schools that do this in some of the departments and stuff. Like, it happens. Like, or that will say that God created, that, you know, it wasn't a seven-day literal creation that God created over periods of time. That is so offensive. I would much rather somebody believe in evolution than theistic evolution. Um, and I don't want them to believe evolution either, obviously. We talked about that yesterday, but um, yeah. Changing God's law of love to uphold idols, right? So they removed the second commandment, but the nine commandments doesn't have the same ring to it, so they split the tenth into two. So the tenth commandment, don't cover your neighbor's wife, and then don't cover your neighbor's stuff. They make those two separate commandments, so it still sounds kind of a round number, which is totally not cool. And then they change the Sabbath and uplift man's traditions, Right? So these are all major gospel issues. These aren't minor ones like, well, they believe in justification and sanctification are two separate events that don't begin at the same, or whatever. Like, this is not an issue of soteriology. Like, this is flying in the face of the basics of the gospel, right? One of the statements that's made in the book of Revelation, no, it's in the book of Daniel, that he went to war with the daily. There's debates on this, so I'm not going to get onto a camp per se. Maybe I will, but I don't mean in an argument sense, but like, Clearly, something about the sanctuaries being monkeyed around with by this system, and the whole purpose of the sanctuary service was to teach us about the plan of salvation. So they're going to alter our view of the plan of salvation, no matter how you want to interpret that situation of the daily. Okay? So it's a big issue. So these teachings and many more led to a repugnant picture of God that caused a violent reaction against Him. That if this is what God is like, there is no God. Bad religion is literally what led to modern-day atheism and the French Revolution, Amen. which was the birthing of modern-day atheism. It was the abuses of religion, and I, I'm fully convinced that many people today are not atheists because of scientific reasons. It's because of, it's because of experiential reasons. Yeah. Bad teachings of God, bad pictures of God, and abuses that happen in religious systems. Yeah, Amen. That's, that's been my experience literally. I mean... It's, it's astonishing, like, it's 99% of the time. Mm-hmm. Like it's, they start with probability, well, science, well, evidence, well, whatever, and we keep digging, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we come down to yeah. that religion. Yep. Like, um, and if you, like, comedians, most comedians, the ones that are super atheist, like, super sacrilegious yeah. and blasphemous, usually former Catholics. Yeah. And it's just like former Catholics or former Jews. Bro, are you kidding me? Like, it's just like they didn't stand a chance. Yeah. No, it's absolutely true, and this is, this is part of the reason why the character of God has to be made known to the world, because people will reconsider. When you fly in the face of everything that they rejected, it changes their whole perspective, because you just took the leg off that they were standing on. So they got to get up off the ground and figure out what to do. Ty tells a story whenever he's on a plane. He made, you ever seen any of his Digma videos? The, the Digma videos that Ty Gibson made, they're like these kind of short videos. 
So he made one, this is a few years ago they made him, but he made one called Atheist 2. He was sitting on an airplane. He was actually reading Sigve Tonstad's book that we talked about yesterday, The Lost Meaning of the Seventh Day. And he's reading it on a plane. The guy sitting next to him looks at Ty's book. He reads some of it, you know, over, you know, you, know, you, you see the person sitting next to you, they're kind of scoping you out what you're doing. Uh, but everyone has headphones on now, so no one talks to each other. But um, anyway, so the, the guy looks over and he's like, oh, we probably won't get along too well. And Ty's like, why is that? He's like, oh, because I'm an atheist. And it looks like you're religious. And Ty says, no, no, I'm an atheist too. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. And the guy's like, well, I could never believe in a God who roasts and toasts people for eternity and like demands their worship. And I could never believe in a God who would sign off on the abuses that happen and all these different things. And Ty's like, yeah, I'm an atheist too. I don't believe in that God either. But what if there was a God who was fully other-centered love, who only did what was in the best interest of the people he created, and that they, and he gives all these beautiful characteristics of who God was. Could you believe in a God like that? The guy says, yeah, yeah, probably. And he says, yeah, that's the God of the Bible. Many of us are atheists, right? We don't believe in the God that other people don't believe in. And that's the thing I think is really helpful. Uh, It's kind of catchy the way that Ty did it, but the point is, like, many of us have more in common with atheists than we think. And so especially like in evangelical circles, we kind of make these like cackling jokes against the atheists. And I mean, I kind of went on some of this yesterday as far as naturalism, but the things that people are rejecting, many times we also could reject. And it's actually a bridge of connection. Adventism is so interestingly suited to meet the largest demographics of non-Adventists. The Catholic Church and the unhealthy picture of God and to help people find a true picture of Jesus. That's a bunch of people, right? That's well over a billion people. You've got Muslims. Evangelicals and Catholics cannot reach Muslims in the way that Seventh-day Adventists can because we actually agree on the same principles of modesty. We agree about the lineage of Abraham, as as they would in some degree, Um, but modesty, we don't eat pork, right? We believe in uh, respect and reverence, and there's a lot of things that we can connect with them on. We don't drink alcohol, right? So there's things that we can resonate with them on, and we are the people of the book that they're looking for. They're looking, they, they actually believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, that's actually talked about in the Quran. They don't know what that means or that he's coming again even. Um, they also believe that. So like there's things that you can connect with them on far better than people could of other worldviews. Because when someone, when a Muslim meets a Christian, their immediate thought is a Catholic and the Crusades. And so introduce yourself as a Seventh-day Adventist. If you notice that someone's a Muslim, introduce yourself as a Seventh-day Adventist and share what you have in common. And many of them say, oh, you're a Muslim. Like, oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're brothers. And so um, anyway, Muslims, atheists, and Catholics, like that's a large chunk of the world population that we have a way to reach with the message that God has given us in the three angels' messages that we're talking about today that others could not be able to give. I wonder why. When unbelief and darkness is growing, God brings a message of hope that's perfectly tailored to meet the needs of many of these people groups. There's a reason for that, guys. You're a member of a movement of destiny. You're in the right place. Okay? You are. All right. Revelation 10 and 11, that beast out of the bottomless pit is atheism removing the papacy from power. Right? And the French Revolution and modern-day atheism are birthed because of the papal influence and the teachings of the Dark Ages, that if God is like that, there is no God. Y'all can keep it. I'm not interested. Yeah, but God isn't like that. And, that's, and so when I would knock on doors, one of my favorite things, Bogdan, when people say, ah, I'm not really religious, I would ask them, 
did you have some bad experiences or did someone hurt you? That was my first question. And my goal when I knocked on doors, whether I got a Bible study or not, was to get them to reconsider God. That was my objective. And you'll have more time to do that when you're Bible working, right? When you're canvassing, it's a different, real, it's a different form of ministry and for a good reason, because you're trying to get to as many people as you can. But in Bible work, you get to park and bark because you're, you're trying to spend time with these people. And when you do, to investigate that would be really helpful. To find ways to connect with them uh, will be a real blessing. So Dark Ages theology rendered people incapable of loving God because they were terrified of Him, right? This unhealthy picture. When you have a fear-based religion, at least a fear-based response, and it's, it's ugly, it's gross, right? And so people rejected Him because they were afraid of Him or terrified of Him, right? You can't worship in a context of fear. You can't truly have a heart and mindset of worship when you're filled with fear. So clearly, that's not the way that God wants to reach us or use that. Here you go. Mm-hmm. And uh, so our message shouldn't be producing that type of fruit because we're rendering people incapable of worshiping Him if they're horrified of Him. Does that make sense? You can't love somebody that you're afraid of, genuinely. So it just, it, I, you got to keep making this point. That can't be the approach that we use. It led them to hate God because, again, one cannot truly worship when the heart is filled with abject fear. Now, a fear to offend him, a fear to hurt him, that's a different story. That's a different type of mindset. Those are two different psychologies, and we've already addressed that, okay? So, interestingly enough, it's at the height of that darkness that God brings the gospel to Martin Luther and other reformers. It's all these bad teachings that were hurting the world and causing people to reject God, it's in that darkest moment that God brings Luther. And it's around that time of year, isn't it? Reformation Day is 11 days away. Don't forget to nail your 95 Reese's to your front door. <laughs> Have you seen that meme? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Someone nailed 95 Reese's to their front door on Halloween for the kids to take. Uh, but the line shines bright, the light shines brightest when it's needed most, and this is when Adventism comes onto the scene, right? Adventism, ah, I just covered all this stuff. It's like a previous version of me showed up too early. Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> Adventism's message is best suited to reach Muslims, atheists, and to bring healing and freedom to Catholics and Protestants alike who have unhealthy pictures of God. God raised up our movement to set the record straight, and this is part of the purpose of the Three Angels' messages. We address all of this stuff, Right? There's also a component Ellen White talks about of the health message in the Third Angel's message, which Rico and and Lance were addressing, that also is helpful to reach the world. So when we see there's more to the message than we initially thought, we recognize that we literally have a message that the entire world is perfectly pre-programmed to receive. That should give you confidence in soul winning. That should give you confidence in witnessing when you recognize that what we have can change this person's life. Right? Part of one of the reasons why people do well, that do do well in sales, is their confidence. Part of the basic five is being happy, right? Having a positive mindset. But another issue that happens is if you're confident in what you're talking about, people will sense that. I don't think we are confident of the three angels' messages. Because I don't think we ourselves fully understand how amazing they are and how relevant they are to the world that's around us. And once you recognize that, this thing's going to go like wildfire. I'm fully convinced Adventism's best days are ahead of us. This movement is not going down. 
Whatever happens with the corporate structure, I can't speak to that with tax issues and all that stuff and property rights. But at the end of the day, I know that this movement is bound for glory and it is so relevant to the needs of the people in this world. And so this should give you confidence in communicating this message to the world, right? Having an evangelistic series shouldn't be a bummer or a drag to you like, let's go. Like, I know this message can change this person's life, especially if we share the message in the way in which God told us to through W.W. Prescott, right? Ella White's endorsement of that model of showing Jesus at the heart of every teaching. Absolutely love to do an evangelistic series. Tell me when, right? And you guys will get to do that this, this spring. You'll get to see that in action and be part of that. So listen to this. The Great Controversy 572.2 to follow up on your point, Sasha, uh, and somewhat Bogdan's point. This is what it says. A prayerful study of the Bible would show Protestants the real character of the papacy and would cause them to abhor and to shun it. But many are so wise in their own conceit that they feel no need of humbly seeking God that they may be led to the truth. I'm a good person, right? I don't know if you saw the conversations. It was, it was, it was blood-curdling for me with the previous administration. Someone interviewed the president and asked him, like, do you, do you repent of your sins? Like, are you a sinner? Do you see the need of Jesus? Like, no, nah, I'm a pretty good person. I'm all right. If you watch the interviews, like, you can't talk like that and claim to be a Christian. You're not a Christian if you talk like that. If you don't actually see your need of Jesus, your brokenness, your weakness, and so forth, we're in trouble. And I don't care what party they're from. I don't have a party. I'm not trying to get political. I'm just saying that there are people who think like this, I'm totally a Christian, and this is what's so appealing about Catholicism. I don't really have to fall on the rock. I just repeat a few lines. I drink the wine. I go meet with a guy behind closed doors, and he's not going to tell anybody, and I can move on with my life. And this is what's so dangerous about this teaching and what's so appealing about this teaching. Although priding themselves on their enlightenment, they are ignorant both of the Scriptures and the power of God. Listen to this. They must have some means of quieting their consciences, and they seek that which is least spiritual and humiliating. So it kind of reminds me of how I do dessert. I want something that's unhealthy enough to make me feel good, but not so unhealthy that it makes me feel bad. Right? Like I bought these like pumpkin-flavored JoJo's from, from Trader Joe's. I've eaten two of them in a month. I'm like, yeah, this is kind of sweet. So I'll eat like five chocolate-covered almonds, and that's all I can do. I can't really eat a lot of sweets anymore. But like, we want something that's the least humiliating, but also kind of quiets our conscience a little bit, right? That's the human nature. What they desire is a means of forgetting God, which shall pass as a method of remembering Him. What a savage line. This, this is what the carnal heart longs for. Something to make me feel like I'm good enough, but to never really face who I really am. And is it possible in Adventism, to have that type of an experience. I'm better than the other guy. At least I eat better or dress better or something else. Is it possible for, for us to live in a context? And it's not because Adventism teaches this. It's because we're carnal human people who are selfish. Is it possible for me to do life that way, to find the least humiliating form of Adventism that makes me feel good about paying a faithful tithe, but to never really fully give my life to Jesus and fall on the rock and admit my brokenness? Is that possible? And so this danger of the second and third angel's message regarding Babylon is not just about what's happening in Rome. It's also about what's happening in your home. It's what's happening in your own heart. Do you see that? 
it's dangerous. So the papacy is well adapted to meet the wants of all of these. It's prepared for two classes of mankind, embracing nearly the whole world, those who would be saved by their merits and those who would be saved in their sins. Here is the secret of its power. That's what's so attractive about it. I can show up, put some money in the plate, drink the wine, say some things behind closed doors if I need to, and move on with my life. But you don't really have to have genuine heartfelt repentance and contrition and so forth. And this is not just a danger for people out there. This is a danger for me right here. And we are not fully preaching the three angels' messages if we don't address this. Because Adventists need the three angels' messages too. Yeah, especially. We all need this message. We're no better than the people we're preaching to. And the fact that you have more light than they do means you're more accountable than they are. God may be more well-pleased with their obedience than He is with yours if the posture of the heart is looking more like the Pope than it is of a contrite Christian. Are you seeing this? So it is a solemn message. I'm not denying that. It should challenge us. Every one of us needs to face this. Um, Jesus says in Matthew 24, beginning of verse 12, "...because lawlessness will abound and the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved." Okay, and so it's this gospel has to go to the end of the world. I'm going to skip some of this for time's sake. On You know that the opposite of selfishness is other-centered love, so I'm not going to read a bunch of verses that make that point. You already know it. So the papacy today and its role in Bible prophecy wasn't birthed in a silo. It's the last stop of the train, but it didn't start the train. So we need to take a step back and realize from whence it came and see if any of those traits are in us or have influenced us. Martin Luther makes a statement. I have to Google it to, to get it verbatim. But he makes this statement that I'm more concerned about the Pope of my own heart than I am about the Pope in Rome. It's the basic premise of his statement. I'm more concerned about, because that, it's that longing to assert oneself, for self to be elevated, for self to be exalted. I'm more concerned about that Pope in my own heart than I am about anything that's happening in Rome. And we need to live in that space as gospel-believing Christians, Right? We have to be living in that safe. So are we drinking the wine of Babylon? Maybe we don't believe in the sacraments or the veneration of the saints, but are we exalting self or giving a picture of God that would lead people to reject Him? Because if we are, that's Babylon. Now, I am not saying that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is Babylon. I would never say that. I'm as Adventist as it gets. If you cut me open, haystacks are going to come out. Like, I am in this thing for life. And Ellen White is very clear that if we say the remnant church is Babylon, it's the work of Satan. But what I am saying is those threads and seeds of Babylon can even find their way into members of the beloved remnant movement. The movement itself is not Babylon, but we as members individually could be struggling with the influences of Rome, even if we don't believe in the sacraments and the other stuff, okay? And so are we exalting self or giving a picture of God that would lead people to reject Him? So I want to go to Mark chapter 15 and verse 23. Everyone can go, but someone read it for us. Mark chapter 15 and verse 23. And they gave him to drink wine, he would murder, but he received it not. It's very interesting to me that Jesus was offered Roman wine as He's dying and giving of Himself for the world. 
And Jesus refused the Roman wine to empower you and I to do the same. The whole world has drunk from the wine of Rome. And even we can do that while cherishing present truth if we're not careful. Right? Do we rule our homes with an iron fist, running our own monarchical kingdom? Right? These are all the things we need to look at. Okay? So, John 13 tells us that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. He lived out the Father's endless love to the end. He died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, 2 Corinthians 5. We talked about this before, verses 14 and 15. Jesus died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, and it's his love that compels us, not fear, not selfishness, not self-preservation. Yeah? So that's, that's the issues of Babylon that I understand uh, when it comes to the second angel's message and even dipping into the third. Any questions you guys have about this? Has this made sense? Yeah? It's kind of heavy stuff, I know. Um, but you get the theme, right? The basic simple principle is the very language that Lucifer is using about, that is used about Lucifer and that he uses in the Bible and his self-exalting, self-ish language is the same language that's being used by the Antichrist system. And the second beast speaks like a dragon. And so those principles and seeds of selfishness are what are corrupting the world around us. And those are the two kingdom principles. God's kingdom is other-centered, unselfish love. Satan's kingdom principle is selfishness. That's the real issue. That's the root issue of the great controversy. If you distill it down to the very basic fundamentals, it's that. And if we can understand that, we can weed through the three angels' messages in a way that's going to set us up to succeed. Because what will lead people to receive the mark at the end of time will be selfishness. The root issue will be that. If I don't do this, I can't eat. If I don't do this, I will die. Right? And so I have to save myself. That's the response. That's the response of the Tower of Babel. That's the response. And I'm going to worship God however I want, which is the response of Cain. Yeah? Any other questions or thoughts? Um, so, yeah, I don't, like the, the thing about thing about the rituals that make us feel that that help us forget God while passing and something that's remembering Him. Like I struggle with that one, like about prayer and like devotional life. You know, it's like, all right, I read my three chapters in the morning. Great, I'm a good Christian. Off we go. Just forget about it. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just scary how subtle it is. Yeah. You know, and then and then when you said about leaving your house with a with an iron fist, like, you know, I've seen it, I've done it probably. But it's like just acting certain ways that are the principles of the papacy that the papacy acted on, that Rome acted on, that Babylon acted on, that Egypt acted on, that Cain acted on, that Satan acted on, you know. Like seeing that thread all of a sudden it's like super applicable yeah. to everything and it's like goodness gracious you know it's everywhere <laughs> and so it's like all of a sudden I'm less worried about 666 and more worried about what in the world am I doing exactly I'm more worried about me 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 right yeah, yeah, yeah. no it's true and it doesn't we're not denying the reality of what's happening in Rome we, we, we went in on that because uh, it is at war with the gospel but it isn't just there and it wasn't their idea they, are, they weren't these like tricky, clever, 
car salesmen that have been ripping off the world, like those, those, their light is borrowed, right? Um, yes, ma'am. Physiologically speaking, I mean, fear. Yeah. Like your your frontal lobe shuts down. That's right. Go into the limbic system of self-preservation mode. Mm-hmm. Where do we connect with God? Frontal lobe. Like, come on. Like it's it's plain as day to me when I look at it from that perspective as well. Should be. You're right. She right. And and when you try to just suppress an emotion instead of processing it properly. Again, when you shut down, Dr. Brene Brown talks about this. When you shut down one emotion, you shut down all of them. Mm-hmm. You can't love when you're just trying to, like, I ah, just don't fear. Like, no, you need to actually work through why you're afraid and process that in a healthy way. Otherwise, you shut down your ability to love at all, um, which is important because that's what we need, right? So, yeah, it's um, God designed us a certain way for a certain reason. It's true. Anybody else? I can smell the smoke if you're brain engines. So let's, uh, let's pray. God, thank you for this chance to dig deeper. We pray for a helpful, rejuvenative break, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.